Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hadley Arcus is with us today. He's the author of many, many things over many years. One of, the, one of his books has the odd title, First Things, uh, and he, he has so many other books and articles uh, that I won't, I won't mention them. He's known well to First Things readers, and many of those articles have been published in First Things magazine. After a long career at Amherst, Professor Arcus decided to move to Washington, D.C., where he now runs the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Uh, he had a commentary on the First Things website about the recent Supreme Court decision that made a fundamental change to Title VII of the Civil Rights Code. He's with us here today to explain. Welcome, Hadley. Oh, thanks. Thanks again for having me in, Mark. Okay, well, let, let's begin with the introduction of the case. What was the background of this case that the Supreme Court ruled upon a couple of weeks ago? Oh, it was a case of one Anthony uh, Stevens, that Andrew Stevens, who was uh, at the point as a funeral director at the um, Harris Funeral Homes in uh, Michigan, and after being with them for several years, he really reported to his employers that he was undergoing a little crisis, and he was really wanted to present himself as as a woman, and that is what set up the case that it was. His employees, of course, were a little reluctant to have him presenting in that way to people who were in situations of grief following a death of the family. And that's what set up the case, though, as a claim of discrimination on the basis of sex under the, uh, under the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964 to the uh, kind of surprise and demoralizing effect on the, con the conservatives um, Neil Gorsuch said he performed a defection here in moving from the conservative bloc to help sustain this kind of a claim. Now, Gorsuch was uh, highly acclaimed when he was appointed, vetted by people who are experts in so-called originalism and textualism. And what uh, the escapade sort of showed is that some people who are certainly adept at these supposed doctrines could go so far off the rails, so to speak, and have such a serious misjudgment when, it, uh, when the situation arose, the matter would be applied to such a grave case. Now, my own, my own anticipation, as we, the word was sort of getting out to us months ago that this defect was underway, my, my own anticipation here 
was, you know, as conservatives were rather dubious about this, they thought that uh, under the, if you're a textualist, you look at uh, what exactly uh, discrimination on the basis of sex meant in 1964 when the act was passed, uh, that people understood it to mean discrimination on the basis of sex, that sex that was reflected in the way our bodies were organized for reproduction, the things that, that in, as a matter of objective truth, grounded in nature, separated males from females. You know, the, the, the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith once pointed out that there's not always been an Italy or a Hungary, but as long as there are human beings, there will be males and females. That is the very reason for having males and females. That is the telos, or purpose, that defines the real meaning of sex. And it was seemed to be understood earlier that what discrimination is based on sex meant that very clear a distinction between the males and females. As Justice Alito pointed out in his dissent in the, the Bostock-Harris case, this is what was obviously meant by the 19th Amendment in barring discrimination on the basis of sex in voting, the amendment that, that finally guaranteed to women uh, the right to vote. And this was the understanding that uh, was obviously at work at the end of the 19th century when states in the West were, um, were barring discriminations based on sex in access to higher education and so on. But the, the probably, I, I anticipated my own thesis in the run-up to this case, was that people would simply invoke uh, the old problem of Lyman Trumbull in the steer the 14th Amendment through the Congress. And it had to assure his colleagues up and down that nothing in that equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment would bar those laws in Illinois as well as Virginia that barred marriage across racial lines. And people seemed to understand at the time that if he couldn't offer that kind of assurance, uh, the 14th Amendment didn't have the ghost of a chance in passing. But since that time, we've had a more expansive, amplified view of what it means to have a discrimination on the basis of race. And of course, we see that, that the that principle would apply to laws that bar marriage across racial lines. And so I was anticipating that what we get from uh, the court, if anybody wanted to, to wing over to the side of uh, Stevens, the, uh, the, the complainant, was that they said, oh, we have more amplified view of what we mean by sex now. Any discrimination that involves a reference to sexuality, and that's essentially what we, we got from... Uh, Justice Gorsuch. Gorsuch, from the very first moments, referred to Steve, to Steve, not as Anthony, but as Amy, as Amy Stevens, and, and used feminine pronouns at every point in referring to him, that she had presented, presented as a male when she had first applied for the job. So what was going on here was that Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch's from the opening moments, had absorbed the predicate, the predicate, the premise of uh, Stevenson's argument that, in point of fact, he had become a woman if he decided that he was a woman. That in, and I think the holding here has to be that in the eyes of the law and, a matter, and discrimination on the basis of sex, 
if Stevens decided he was a woman, then that is a judgment that we'd have to respect. And we just had uh, David Crawford doing a fine piece for first things on the, uh, the metaphysics of the Boston case. And he and um, Michael Hanvey and uh, Maggie McCarthy had done a graceful, elegant brief uh, in the case. And what they pointed out was that, that this, the, the issue here was not the freedom of Stevens to present himself as a female and to dress as a female, but whether everybody else around him would be obliged to respect that judgment. That any of his co-workers started refusing to use the, the proper pronouns and made it clear that they, uh, they thought his, his presentation of himself as a woman was risable, uh, was obviously, obviously in opposition to the, to the most objective truth grounded in If any of the people around him, any colleagues, expressed their dubiety about that, well, they themselves could put themselves at, at legal hazard uh, and put their employers at legal hazard because they're very uh, dubiety expressed in that way could be taken to, um, to help create a so-called hostile work environment. Now, so this, this, so the, the damage here is, is this is something that promises to radiate outward. And for that very, that very day, we saw some, uh, a, a suit filed, I gathered to, for a transgendered, transgendered boy applying to be in the male boy's uh, uh, bathroom at a high school. Uh, uh, Justice Gorgeous said the, the locker rooms and bathrooms and, uh, and these are all separate matters we haven't really reached. But as Justice Alito pointed out, you've just established that there was something presumptively wrong in drawing an adverse judgment about someone because he has came to a different judgment about uh, his or her sex. And it's, it's wrong to turn someone away, to withhold benefits or suggest any kind of an adverse judgment on that basis. And if that's the case, then presumptively that rule, that judgment would apply to, to bathrooms, locker rooms, and so on, which is the opening now, I think, for the Congress, if the, if the Republicans could summon the nerve to uh, start offering the proposal. They won't be able to get it enacted in uh, Democratic uh, Democratic House. But say, well, look, this, this decision was supposedly offering an interpretation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Congress earlier on had, had made it clear that nothing in that act was understood to threaten Smith, Monholyoke, Wellesley College, those colleges reserved for women. And in the same way, the Congress could affirm that, and Congress could take steps now to do something to uh, ensure that this act is not construed to uh, require boys to be in women's bathrooms or locker rooms or, or to claim uh, presences on, on all female teams. Congress could do something here. Now, which is to say that the Republicans in Congress could offer a proposal to make an issue out of this, and Mr. Trump could take it on if, the Republicans were in the business of raising issues. And if Mr. Trump had an interest in actually 
speaking in sentences and framing arguments for the public in this 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 season of elections. I presume, Hadley. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll keep going, but on this side note of the politics, I presume there is pretty much nobody in the Republican Party or in the White House who wants to touch this. That's amazing, yet it can't, it, it, this is one of those issues that promises to have the most profound effect on the way we live together as a people, an ordinary life. And it, it touches the very core of, of the law. I mean, who, who is that human person? Who is the subject of the law, the object of the law's uh, protection? Uh, there's only one, as Aristotle explained to us in the politics, there's only one kind of creature who is fitted for the life of law. Only one kind of creature who can give and understand reasons over matters of right and wrong. Only one kind of creature could understand why he's obliged to bear an obligation or a promise or a commitment, even when it no longer recorded with his his own interests, reinclinations. Now, this is the very core of the law. And if the Congress cannot, if our political arena, if we can't discuss these questions in the political arena, what, what is the business of our politics? This goes to the very core of things. I mean, did we ever think we'd come to a point in our public lives when a legislature could actually make it wrong for people to use the pronouns that refer to men and women and make it wrong for us to refer to a, a, a woman by a female pronoun when, when he affects become when she affects become a male. Do we ever think we'd reach a point where 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 parents could be threatened with the loss of their children if they seek counsel for a child who is undergoing gender dysphoria? No, as our friend Paul McHugh at uh, Josh Hopkins would tell us, uh, uh, a, a youngster who's, who's, who thinks that she, he really is a woman or a boy thinks, or a girl thinks she's a, a boy, uh, these, these are young people who are confused and are in need of counseling. They're not in need of surgeries. Now, if, if we say, well, my goodness, uh, I guess the problem is that it runs so deep to the very core of the law, that this is not what politicians are, are comfortable talking about, is it? Uh, they'd rather talk about the familiar business of, of, of the traffic laws and uh, unemployment and tax breaks and, uh, and infrastructure. Uh, it doesn't occur to them they may have to deal with it. But yet, if this isn't a crisis, I mean, that we could actually live in a country that would bar, a legislature would bar parents from seeking counsel, for a youngster uh, who's undergoing confusion about his or her sexuality, that's, a, that's another country. It's another world. Hadley, let's be clear. Left-wing politicians have no trouble going into profound metaphysical issues. They, they assert it with a great deal of confidence. Why is it that politicians on the right don't have the same kind of confidence? Well, to put it briefly, it beats the hell out of me. But no, this, this is the lament. We've had the old problem of, of the evil party and the stupid party. And you don't know why it is that the Republicans can't summon the nerve 
unless they're just intimidated by the fact that the media are so much in control of the liberal side that that is what's pounded in that day and night that they think there's something, they think there must be something suspect about their own position, or at least that they carry a heavier burden of proof. But the curious thing is, they do speak for the conservative position. People who speak that conservative position would be speaking the language of ordinary people. I mean, it would be very easy for, for Mr. Trump earlier on, even a couple of years ago, to say, look, don't, are you telling me that, that, that uh, a guy can have access to a girl's bathroom or a locker room? Or that a guy can suddenly appear on a, on a, a, in a women's contest and a women's in sports and take the prize? This is just absurd. He could have said that, and it could have served residents in the lab. Now, why does he still like him to speak such odd words that would stir this residence on ordinary people is, is, is a mystery. And why Republicans seem to be so un, un, reluctant and diffident about doing it is, is one of the curiosities of our time, Mark. Yeah, you're, I share your, your wonderment at this. I, I, it is a curiosity because I think that the conservative position on this is a political winner. I think that while the media, of course, are, are going to uh, denounce and smear, that the, the, when, when, if the popular vote came down to whether biological males should be able to compete in women's sports, then... The, the conservatives are going to win that when it when it comes down to the vote, but they yeah no they don't they won't touch it. Well, let me let me ask you something because Hadley, you meet with judges, you're very involved in in legal theory and in decision making and jurisprudence in in America today. When Justice Gorsuch used the phrase that. Stevens initially presented as a male, what he was doing there was really making an assertion that you would hear in a gender theory class at UC Berkeley. This is a dogma of, of the gender theory position, gender as performativity, and or sexuality as performativity even. Now, for, for a judge, for a judge to be appointed who is going to make such a statement that trashes one of the fundamental bases of human nature, one has to wonder how in the world did Justice Gorsuch ever get appointed to the Supreme Court given all the times conservatives have been burned by putatively conservative judges who then vote with the liberal majority. How did this happen? Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that the kinds of questions have been posed to people who are candidates for the bench never touch on those questions. Well, what is your justice about, about the human person? You know, remember, uh, remember that line of Lincoln's that the question for slavery is whether the, the, the Negro is a Negro, is or is not a man. If he is not a man, anyone who is a man could do with him what he wishes. But if he is a man, then my ancient faith tells me all men are created equal, that uh, he has as much right to govern himself as anyone else in the government by the consent of the government. Now, Harry Joffert once pointed out, see, 
Well, the question of whether the Negro is or is not a man is not a value judgment. It's not something you'd say, you know, you know, but Scalia was always in favor of just putting these things out in the political arena. When does human life begin? Put this out in the political arena. Um, could we put out in the political arena whether the black man is a man? Could we vote on that? Is that what you mean by a value judgment that, uh, that, that the standing of the black man would depend on whether I attach value to it? Remember, value judgment was a term that begins, I think, with Harvey's nature and Max favor. A term people started using when they turned away from using such notions as moral truth, right? So now we say, uh, get get on your and your line. What if we had people uh, who are candidates for the bench, and we ask them such questions as, is that a value judge? Is, is that question about what the black man is a black? Is that, is that something you put out in the political arena? Or is there an anchoring objective truth about that matter? And then the same thing turns to the child in the womb. It, 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 do we not have compelling evidence that this 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 offspring in the womb was human from its first moments? Some of us are making the pitch, and it's time to start asking questions of that kind instead of the questions we have been asking. I return to your point. Okay, what he said, he presented as a male. Once, if this is your, you know, David Crawford of Michael Hamby and Maggie McCarthy picking up on this point, that he was adopting the metaphysic of the homosexual movement or the people who would detach sexuality from our embodied existence, that we are indeed constituted by nature as males and females, so that Gorsuch could talk about a male Two people attracted to a woman. One is a male and the other is a female. And he thinks it's the same thing because they're attracted to that woman. But they mean entirely different things because one may be attracted as a natural attraction and another simply um, as, a, as a homosexual or lesbian attraction. And to treat the two the same is to detach the meaning of, of sex and sexuality from that way in which we are constituted by nature as males and females. Now, I was at the court on the day that this case was argued, and I can report to you that Neil Gorsuch on that day did present as a male. I saw him as a male. And I am as convinced today that he is as much a male today as he was then. But that construction he presented as a male, he identified as a male. It, it makes, it can, it, really inversely, it makes the meaning of sexuality depend not on an objective state, but on when Jerry Bradley, Jerry Bradley of Notre Dame, remember crystallized the drawing on, on the literature, that that sex is a binary thing and it's immutable. But one's feelings about one's sex, ah, those things are indeed mutable and they will change over time. Uh, and depend on subjective judgments. It makes a profound difference if you come to this question with a sense that there is indeed an anchoring truth, that we're not simply afloat among all kinds of ingenious ideas. You may recall that J.K. Rowling, the one who, who wrote the Harry Potter book, books, got into trouble when she made some critical comments about transgenderism. She, she, was, she was recoiled. Somebody's saying, 
those beings who those beings who undergo menstruation, those beings who undergo menstruation. And she said, "Yes, we've had a we've had a very we've had a, a familiar name for those kinds of beings. We call them women." Well, you see, there's an example of the same kind of thing you're citing in, in relation to, to Neil Gorsuch. He identified it as, oh, it's someone who has, uh, uh, men, who menstruates, and uh, even with sex change operations, males would not be menstruating, but yet you, you want to speak with your default, as you said, the language that may come out of gender studies to tell us it's all subjective, that there is no clear definition of of males and females. It's a matter of, of that some, it's a matter of who is presenting the question. That there's a certain kind of power engaged in presenting the question. Yeah. So for people who take this perspective, we can start referring to those who menstruate, holding out the possibility that one day it could be males who menstruate. Hadley, for a justice whose appointment was greeted with such acclaim on the conservative side two years ago and was often held up as one of the best reasons for conservatives to support President Trump, has this decision produced a wave of anxiety or a loss of confidence among the Federalist Society and other conservative legal figures who were very strong on endorsing Justice Gorsuch. Well, of course, I think the people, there's lots of people who who um, backed him quite quite heavily and put their own their own reputations on the line. And many of the people are quite embarrassed by it. I mean, I have I didn't know much that, that much of that about him. It came from it seemed a good beginnings. He had good credentials. He, he studied with John Finnis at, at Oxford. He uh, wrote a book on, a, on assisted suicide. Uh, he seemed to be hooked into people who did, did natural law, but obviously he wasn't anchored. Uh, people did not anticipate this kind of a move, which, yes, it is, it is a crippling embarrassment for the, the Federal Society has been a, a marvelous society in offering a chance to express conservative views on the campuses and the campuses of law schools and in bringing people together in fine fora in, in Washington with, with uh, your conservative and liberal views. But they've been very much hooked into originalism and textualism. And we discover again that those, it's a, it, that it's a truncated view of originalism that's been on offer a view that separates the American founders from those principles of, principles of natural right and natural law that they drew upon, the principles that were there before the Constitution and would be there even if there were no Constitution. So first, we get a view of originalism that separates the understanding of the founding from that sense of originalism, and we get a view of textualism that, uh, that sort of detaches the text from the, the need to keep moving beyond the text to those principles that were there before the text in order to explain the text. I mean, years ago, uh, if you have time for this, maybe Justice Frankfurter would 
linger over that question of that line of the Fifth Amendment. No one should be obliged to give evidence of any, to, to incriminate himself in any, uh, give evidence against himself in any criminal proceeding. And he said, well, where does the accent lie? Is it compelled to give evidence against himself? If we gave him immunity, can we compel him to give evidence about his friends in the Communist Party? And the point of this is that one had to go back, but beyond the text, to the understanding that had to inform the text. Okay, this is the part that uh, was, has been persistently missed in what has been offered to us as conservative jurisprudence. Uh, and what, so what we discovered here is it's a moment of, of revelation and deep embarrassment. And my piece for uh, first things, I said what was revealed was a morally empty jurisprudence. It's, it's a jurisprudence that tries to work by doing things like saying, well, abortion was never mentioned in the Constitution, therefore judges have nothing to say about the subject. And uh, marriage was never mentioned in the Constitution, and yet the court managed to strike down the laws that barred marriage across racial lines. Uh, there are many reasons for the Legislative Congress to deal with marriage and abortion, quite, quite apart from the fact that the subject isn't mentioned in the text of the Constitution. But we're getting it was around a formulaic jurisprudence. Now, a critical point I'd make to, in sort of rounding up this talk, and it, it, we shouldn't complete this phase of talk without it, though, because I would draw upon that marvelous piece that first things just ran by David Crawford on the metaphysics of um, the Bostock case, making the point, again, as I just stated before, that the case really went to the very core of how we are constituted as human beings. It was put, it was displacing that critical point that we are indeed constituted as males and females. There's an objective definition, objective understanding, a truth about this matter of what is sex, grounded in our nature, as a necessary part of that nature. If there are to be human beings, there must be males and females. Now, the critical point here that we should not overlook make is that as the conservatives have been coming back with their criticisms of Neil Gorsuch and say, well, this is not true textualism. This was not faithful to the uh, statute. You have to understand the statute as it was understood at the time. And you look back to dictionaries and how people understood this at the time. This was, it was, it was just bad textualism, bad originalism, and so on. Well, the kind of criticisms we're getting were of that level, and maybe there's a confusion of the terms because of sex as opposed to discrimination on the basis of sex. Boys had all these kinds of things. But nowhere, Mark, I point out, nowhere in the conservative critique of this decision did any of the conservative critics touch that root of the matter that David Crawford pointed out to us in his piece and first things on the metaphysics of Bostock, that this thing involved the very root of the matter of who is that human person who is the subject of the laws and what will this decision do to our ordinary lives in affecting the way parents are with children, the kind of confusion fostered among children about their own sexuality, the sexuality of their, their parents, whether small private colleges are going to be compelled to have uh, outreach and promote 
transgender. Nowhere, nowhere in the conservative critique was, did the kind of critique offered by David Crawford about the this moral root of the problem, nowhere did that critique come into sight for the conservative critics, which is to say that that moral dimension of the problem has been systematically screened out from what the conservatives regard as law. It doesn't come part of the, of the construction. Remember, this, this, is, this is, brings us back to that famous line from Justice Holmes in The Path of the Law, that the, that the purpose of the modern project, as he said, was to banish all words of moral significance from the law altogether and leave us then with an understanding of law nicely purged of any of these vexing moral terms so that the moral, we don't suffer those, that moral confusion. We're out to render a pure legal judgment, a judgment that need not touch on anything of moral substance. And I think what we got here, we're getting the perfect, perfect reflection of that state of mind. And it's been revealed even on the part of conservative critics who've been uh, critical of, uh, of the decision by Mr. Gorsuch in the in the uh, Bostock case. Hadley Arcus, thank you for joining us for explaining what uh, what is going on and why it's going on. We'll have to have you again soon. <laughs> okay, Mark. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.